0: Welcome to the Accessible Altar, a podcast of conversations at the intersection of faith and disability. I'm Robin King. And I'm Stephanie Shockley. And we're your hosts. Today we are in conversation with the Reverend Sharon Knoll. The Reverend Sharon Knoll is the pastor of Valley United Presbyterian Church in a small town community that straddles the Pennsylvania-New York border. Prior to 2014, Valley United was three Presbyterian Church USA churches. Sharon walked them through the merger, selling a church building and renovating and newly constructing the third across state and denominational borders. She is a master of divinity graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary and also has a master's in nonprofit management from Eastern University. Sharon has an autoimmune disease of blood vessel inflammation, GPA vasculitis, that she was diagnosed with in 2018. She almost lost her life to the disease twice in 2018, shortly after diagnosis, but she relies on infusions and her kitchen counter pharmacy to manage the disease today. A native of the Philadelphia area, she lives in upstate New York with her husband Ty and her beagle Jack Russell rescue is Shiloh.
1: Sharon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. We are really excited you're here. I want to hear, just to get started, I'd love some context for this church merger. I mean, it, that is a huge deal, taking three congregations and helping them find their way into a merger. Um, I'm really fascinated. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what that was like.
2: So I am in a little valley that's four miles long between the Susquehanna River and the Chemung River, and this community straddles the state border. So most of us who live here cross the state border, I don't know how many times a day, and nobody even thinks twice about it. There are Pennsylvania and New York license plates and police. It's just, it's crazy. Um, So there were three Presbyterian Church USA churches in this little valley. This used to be a railroad town, so it was flourishing at one point in time. But now um, it's mostly older folks who live here. And we all remember the days when we used to put chairs in the aisles on Christmas, and the church used to be the center of all the social activities. And so these three churches, independently of one another, went through a process called New Beginnings, and out of that process came the decision that they either needed to think about doing ministry in a new and different way or they needed to consider hospice care. So they started talking to one another and eventually decided to merge. Now this was before I got here. They had just they had been merged about 8 months before I got here. So um, we had three church buildings, two in Pennsylvania, one in New York. And then all the decisions started about, well, what do we do with all this stuff? We have buildings and communion tables and Bibles and hymnals and candles and Christmas decorations out the wazoo. So now what do we do with all this? Which was the hardest part of the merger is figuring out how to evenly distribute the stuff what was in the best condition what was worth keeping what was tattered and torn and so it was it was really complicated the division of the stuff was really complicated but we came through it we went through some tremendous growing pains but we settled into our new building at the end of 2019 and thought yes now we can start our ministry in our new home and then we all know what happened in yeah. twenty twenty. <laughs>
0: uh-huh.
2: So we're trying to revisit that question and figure out who God is calling us to be in and for the community that we're in.
1: That is that is a, it's a that is a wild like that is a really wild story. Just just that piece of it, you know, and having <laughs> walked them through all of that. I mean, that I've just oh my gosh that. That is a lot. and so much of that resonates, I know with me, I'm guessing also mm-hmm. with Robin and Robin's experiences and, and her, her ministry. Um, and so in the midst of all that, you something happened to you. You got sick, like out of the blue, right? Yep. Can tell us a little bit about what that was like, what happened.
2: So I was perfectly healthy growing up, never had a cavity never broke a bone, never spent time in the hospital. I was ridiculously healthy. And in March of 2018, I thought I had come down with the flu and I started coughing. By the end of the week, I was having difficulty breathing and uh, I ended up in the emergency room of my local hospital. They admitted me and couldn't figure out what was wrong. Again, I'm in a, a small town area So I ended up uh, transferring to a city hospital in Philadelphia, and they had me diagnosed and a treatment plan within 24 hours. So what I have is not terminal. It is treatable, but it's not curable. My symptoms are in my left airway. So I have stenosis or narrowing of the airway. Um, I had a stent put in last year with the hopes that the scarring would form around the stent and therefore leave the airway scarred open. And that seems to have worked well so far, knock on wood. Um, so I'm considered in remission, which doesn't mean the disease is gone. It just means it's in the back, it moves from the foreground to the background until it decides to rear its ugly head and flare again. But that first week I got sick, um, I ended up in the hospital two days before Palm Sunday. So I oh missed the entirety of Holy Week in two thousand eighteen. And Lent is really long when you don't get the bursting forth of joy of Easter on the other end. I can I can speak truth to that.
1: Right. And so so you have this really serious illness and you wind up getting sent to the, you know, the tertiary care hospital that has all the things. Right before. Yeah. So right before the beginning of Holy Week and with this merged church, it's still, I guess, finding their way through all what what are their Holy Week, Lent, Easter, you know, practices. I mean, that oh, my
0: gosh. Yeah, they didn't like, even that's... have like a, well, we always do X so we can default to that.
2: <laughs> well, that actually served us really well because mm-hmm. there was no, well, this is the way we've always done it. So we were creating the way that we've always done it. So we thankfully, we have a really beloved um, retired lay pastor in the congregation who put his health issues aside and jumped into action and filled in for me on Easter. And the church was packed and I'm sitting in my hotel room, giving myself communion with grape juice and a blueberry muffin. And meanwhile, I'm getting photos texted to me from parishioners of a full sanctuary and what a great time they had. And it was really hard. It was really hard.
0: Yeah, that sounds beautiful, but also bittersweet.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah.
1: You and I had talked before and you told me that um, even once you were released from the hospital, your doctors were concerned that they wanted you close at hand in case, you know, they needed They needed to see you immediately in case your condition changed or whatever, so that you couldn't go all the way for a while. You couldn't be all the way back home. You really had to be in Philadelphia or close to Philadelphia.
2: Right. So Philadelphia is a three and a half hour drive one way from where I live. So when they finally let me out of the hospital, I think it was a total of 10 days, they they wouldn't release me to come back to New York because it was too far away if something happened. So I ended up spending a month in the Philadelphia area. That's where I'm from. So I was at least able to stay with my parents and have motherly support nearby, which was wonderful um, to have somebody to take care of you. And um, it was nice to be able to have a home to go to and not be holed up in a hotel or something like that. But yeah, I think it was a full month before they clear, the doctors cleared me to come back to New York.
1: How did your congregation handle all this kind of as it was unfolding and what has it been like since?
2: (laughs) You're not going to believe me when I tell you this, (laughs) but my congregation has been 100% supportive of me treating so far away of me getting as healthy as I can be of supporting me. I mean, they showed up with food and cards and they covered all the Sundays that I missed that first year or so. I missed the first Sunday of Advent, too, <laughs> in 2018. I just rounded the whole liturgical year out. Um, so they, they filled in with pulpit supply. They insisted that I take all my vacation and study leave. They didn't hold any of that time against me. Oh, wow. And all they told me was, we, we want you back and we want you healthy. So it was absolutely a blessing. So
1: that's the second time that I've heard that. I was just, just remember thinking I wanted to hold this congregation up as mm-hmm. as as this like example for the whole church <laughs> because
2: absolutely, yeah,
0: yeah. Sadly, that's not the uh, most common experience. Yes, I
2: realize that. And I, my heart goes out <clears throat> to all those situations where you know a pastor gets sick, and the congregation is like, "Right, but who's gonna preach, mm-hmm. or who's gonna lead the meeting, or who's gonna do the yeah?" That's that's so hard.
1: One of the th- one of the reasons this podcast exists, or is because of the only reason, but one of the reasons this podcast exists is because the pandemic wound up being. A- kind of the kick that I needed to be encouraged to start having conversations about illness and disability in a public way. And I'm wondering how the pandemic affected not just your congregation, but you specifically, because this sounds to me like, like a kind of health condition where you'd have to be really, really concerned about COVID.
2: Yeah. So, um, in the beginning Had I contracted COVID, um, it would have meant death. That's just the facts. Um, Then we were all excited because the vaccine came out. And even though I'm in um, a socially, politically, culturally conservative area, my whole congregation almost went out and got vaccinated as did I. And then I found out because of one of the medications I'm on for my disease, it renders the vaccine ineffective for me. Oh, no. Yeah. So it was right back to feeling like, oh, my gosh, this is so scary. And then the new variants were coming out that were super, super contagious. And I just felt like, well, you know, if this is my time, Lord, take me home kind of thing. Um, And then there was a treatment that came out called shelled that is basically gives you the antibodies that your body can't produce, that the, the vaccine would give a, a normal, in quotes, would give a normal body that my body can't produce. Um, so I get those every six months. Um, my husband, in fact, is just getting over COVID and I didn't pick it up because we were super careful with masking and isolating and hand sanitizing. And I was doing all this for two years before COVID even started because I had no idea what it meant to live being immunocompromised. That was a new experience for me. So I was extra vigilant in the beginning, which ended up serving me well when COVID became a reality. So to date, knock on wood, there I haven't gotten COVID. But at this point, You know, they're saying that everybody is going to pick it up at some point. So I'm just, I'm waiting for when, you know, my card comes up in the deck kind of thing. And then we'll just take it as it is and deal with it when it happens. But it was really challenging, especially when the questions came up about, can we take our masks off now? Why do we have to keep wearing masks? Masks don't do any good. I read an article that said, you know, all that kind of stuff. It was really frustrating and really defeating when you're the one sitting there in the room saying, you have to wear a mask to keep me alive, literally, not exaggerating, literally. So why are we even talking about this? But it was a very me-focused time, so it's all about me. And I don't like wearing a mask because it makes me hot and I get headaches from carbon dioxide and all the reasons people were coming up with. And that was that it was really, really challenging because, you know, I missed that pandemic class in seminary. So (laughs) you didn't have that one?
1: I mean, the Episcopalians totally did. No, we
0: didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure someone is writing it, but yeah.
1: Yeah, we, we skipped that class, too, or I don't know. I wasn't, I, I must've been somewhere else on that one day in pastoral theology <laughs> class or something, <laughs> no idea. I feel like there's, there's different phases of it. Cause there's the, the time to sort of the gosh, before COVID and after COVID, but, but what did having this really serious kind of, this really serious chronic illness, um, what did that change in your ministry?
2: It moved me from being the one at the foot of the bed praying with the sick person to being the one in the bed and in need of prayer. So it totally flipped the tables on me in a way that I was absolutely not at all prepared for. And, um, you know, my congregation, like many congregations, is mostly senior citizens. So... It made me a lot more relatable for them because yes, okay, so I'm probably at least a generation younger than them, but I know what it's like to be strapped up to the heart monitors, you know, to get that dye for the CT scan that makes you feel like you peed your pants, to have the, you know, the MRI where you can't rest or move, but you're supposed to hold totally still. Like all those tests, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to eat hospital food for a 10-day stretch and for the, you know, 3 a.m. blood draws and stuff like that. So it's made me able to relate to people more in a way that, you know, totally healthy, pre-disease me would have probably just brushed all that off and had no idea because I'd never been through any of that.
1: Your understanding of what your parishioners go through you know, certainly changed. Um, and, but what did, were there things that you that you used to preach or that you believed before you got sick that, that changed also that maybe you talk about in a different way?
2: Um, it's given me more sermon illustrations because there's a lot of funny stuff that happens in hospitals. Um, there's a lot of funny stuff that you have to go through when you're in a hospital and you basically have <clears throat> no autonomy, no human dignity, no you're just on display for whoever wants to poke and prod at you at whatever time of day or night. Um, so in that respect, yes. Um, but it's also, there are, I read scripture differently now. Um, Stephanie, you and I were talking a little bit in the pre-interview about Job, and that was, so I took um, many classes in seminary on Job. I learned about Job from Dr. Sayal, who literally wrote the commentary. Job was his thing. And I took those classes and I was like, yeah, I'm going to get into ministry and I'm going to really show people the brilliance of all the stuff that's in Job. And, you know, I did that in the beginning and I did it in a very academic sort of way but then when i got sick it it changed so i haven't preached job i haven't done any sort of bible studies i haven't even really talked about job since i've gotten sick it just it hits a little too close to home now so that's one of the ways i i just hear scripture differently now especially in some of the healing stories of Jesus and the gospels, it just, I find myself identifying with the person in need of healing rather than looking at it as what can I learn from the actions of Jesus in this story? Now it's like, well, why did this person come to, did Jesus come to them or did they come to Jesus? And what did Jesus do to heal them? What did they need healed? What might they have been going through? What was the suffering like? And it just, I hear things differently now as the person who would probably be on their side rather than on the side of the disciples
1: um we did a bible study back in in like in may when we took a look at um well not just the healing miracles we took a look at some other things as well but kind of from a different point of view than a lot of us heard growing up because when you're talking about an illness or when you're talking about disability, you do hear those passages differently, mm-hmm. um, and I don't. I, I think not not all of our clergy, you know, realize that. Um, like for, so one of the things you're talking about the point of view of the person who came to Jesus for healing. One of the things I look at a lot of times in those stories is the is autonomy because it's autonomy is so important when haven't always had autonomy or people have assumed they know what you need or they know what you're going through. And that I don't remember that ever being preached. Like Jesus asks people what they want or they get to decide whether to come to him or not.
2: Right. And touch becomes so important because when you're in the hospital, all the touch you get is clinical or diagnostic. They want to scan your bracelet. They want to check your IV. They want to draw your blood. They want to You know, it's very clinical. It's not warm. It's not comforting. It's not loving. And so I don't imagine the touch of Jesus, you know, if he touches someone to heal someone, it's not, you know, I'm literally going to put this ointment on your boils so that they go away and then I'll come back in three to five days and check and see, (laughs) you know, it's not that it's a loving touch which is not what you get in a clinical setting it's more of a a therapeutic a healing touch than a curing touch if that makes any sense
0: it's a depersonalized touch yes yeah
2: yeah, I'm sort of. I'm smiling because I'm sort of. I'm
1: thinking over here, thinking, you know, Jesus never walked up to somebody and said, "Oh, hey, let me scan your bracelet."
2: Okay, date of birth, <laughs> you know, like, right?
0: Allow me to confirm. You're the person we're going to bill for this, <laughs>
2: right? Yeah, I've got. Anytime somebody asks my name, I give my name and date of birth. It's just automatic now because that's what I'm asked for it. But I'm not. I'm not a toucher. I don't like hugs. Even before I got sick. I'm not a touchy feely kind of person. And that was something I struggled with in CPE that, you know, my supervisor was like, well, I want you to go out today and touch someone. And I'm like, but I don't, that's not natural to me. I don't want, and it's not because someone was sick. It was just because that's not natural for me. And now I'm on the other end of it. And I'm like, you know, I was just visiting a parishioner um, an hour or so ago. And I was telling her, you know, just when I'm, getting anesthesia and someone's rubbing my shoulder or holding my hand and how comforting, I mean, it's three seconds of touch, but how comforting that is while you're losing consciousness for someone to care enough to say, yeah, this is, this is stressful. So let me provide a little bit of comfort as this is happening.
1: So you talk about Joe being something that now you, really have kind of backed away from because you're just not in a place of wanting to deal with just the, really the personal aspect of it now. Um, on the flip side of that, you know, you mentioned some of the miracles of Jesus. Is there something that you've been drawn to in a new way that maybe wasn't that it didn't stand out to you so much before you were sick?
2: I like the story of the bent over woman. And I have this, I have an image of this in my office at the church. And it's, so she's bent over and the well is between them. And Jesus is bent over. The arch in his back matches the arch in her back. And that, that's interesting that I find that, and this was even before I got sick, I was interested in this. Because it's the whole, you know, we don't need to go to a fancy church with a golden cross and the best smelling incense in the world to have an encounter with God, right? Because God meets us where we are. And I find that a really powerful message, with especially the stuff that's going on in the world with the war in Ukraine, with hunger and poverty and political divisions that God doesn't care about any of that. God meets us at exactly the place where we are as long as we're open to having an encounter with God. And that, that is such a powerful message to me.
1: What is it that you, um, that you've learned through, everything you've gone through. And here at the accessible altar, we don't say that like, there's like a good reason to suffer, right? Like it's suffering, Mm -hmm. just suffering, but sometimes things come out of it anyway, that are, are good. doesn't make the suffering okay. But what's something that you've learned through all the things that you've gone through that you really would like other clergy and lay leaders to, um, to understand and to use in their ministry.
2: So I went through the grief in the beginning of missing that person who I was, pre-disease and all those dreams and ambitions and goals that I had that suddenly seemed like were never going to be an option for me anymore and I was angry, I was sad. I went I went through all the seven stages some more than once. Um And I never, you know, I said some really nasty things to God and I don't apologize for them Um, because if God is the creator of absolutely everything, that same (laughs) seminary professor who taught Job said, never be afraid to cry out to God and say mean things to God because God can take it. And I, I said some really nasty things to God and I don't take them back. I don't apologize for them because that's where I was at that point in time. So I think it's okay to grieve whatever it is that you've lost. And figure out what the new to figure out what the new normal is is not easy. And even if it it is what the new normal is, you don't have to like it. And you certainly don't have to love it. And that's, if there are other pastors out there, and I know there are, um, who are dealing with ministry and balancing chronic illness at the same time, take time to feel your feelings. Because you can't, I have a family member whom I love dearly, but who just wants to fix it, just wants to give me the advice to try the thing, to do the yoga, to take to do all that stuff. And just once to. if you just got out and walked 30 minutes a day, I have a parishioner who, well, if you just did the keto diet, or if you just ate the CBD gummies or, you know, whatever the, the fix of the moment is, we've all heard the essential oils and the, you know, exercise more and eat less and all that stuff, especially as women, because women hear that more than men do. Um, there is a lot of that that goes on and I love this. I love this family member dearly but I tell her all the time, I said, "Stop trying to fix me. Just listen." And then at the end say, "That sounds hard. Good for you." Or something of that sort. That's all I want. That's all I want. And so if you are able-bodied or you don't suffer from a chronic health condition or something like that, That's all we want is just to feel seen, to feel believed. How many of us go to the doctors and nobody believes our symptoms? Again, especially women, um, to feel seen, to feel believed, to feel heard, because we are also, even though, you know, I know this is somewhat problematic language, but even if our bodies are to some degree of broken, we are still created beings in the image of God with equal worth and purpose as each one of our brothers and sisters and siblings out there. And so just listen and believe. Believe us when we tell you we can't get out of bed or we can't get through the day without a nap in the afternoon or, you know, marvel at the kitchen counter pharmacy that we have and say, wow, that must be tough. That's it. That's it. Um, for those who are, experiencing some degree of disability or illness feel your feelings and be honest about what's going on even if the people around you don't want to hear it because when you speak it you're speaking truth to power you're speaking your truth and you're advocating for yourself in a world where nobody else is going to advocate for you you've got to be your own advocate so that's what i would say
1: there's, there's so much in there and, oh my gosh, there's so much in there and it's really great advice. And it just seems like such an antidote to some of the perfectionism and the toxic positivity that yes. we find both in society, but also, at least in my experience, in the church, the Yes, culture of toxic positivity and culture of overwork also.
2: At the end of the year, last year, I was totally burnt out. And I went to my personnel committee and I shared that with them. And I said, listen, this one day a week off nonsense, it's not cutting it for me. Nobody else who works full time is expected to do that with one day off a week. And let's not get into one day off, but also self-care. Let's not get into that with clergy. Because <laughs> that's, that's the system feeding the monster. But um, I said, I need two days off a week consecutive days and they just looked at me and went oh okay and so now i have fridays and saturdays off and it is a game changer now i have a day to do all my errands and cleaning and chores and all that stuff and then i have a day for rest and that is not a nice to have that is a need to have for me and they just said okay so i said i am not available unless you know someone's dying for those two days and they said okay so you've got you've got to advocate for yourself and speak speak your truth even if people don't want to hear it
0: Right after the brief interruption there, you had mentioned talking about some resources.
2: Yes. So I am the kind of person who, when something happens to me or I need more information about something, I run out and buy books. Um, So the first thing I did was I grabbed Surviving and Thriving with an Invisible Chronic Illness by Ilana Jacqueline. Um, and the subtitle is how to stay sane and live one step ahead of your symptoms. And that's a good book. If you're looking for a reassurance that you're not crazy and this is terrible and you're trying to, you're going to figure it out. You just got to give yourself some time. Um, I also got, you don't look sick by Joy H. Salak and Stephen S. Overman. He's a doctor. Um, they co-wrote the book together, and that's more practically based, like what do you do when your disability is denied and how do you navigate the healthcare system and things like that. And I'm working my way right now through a book called The Wounded Storyteller by uh, Arthur W. Frank, and he is a sociologist, and so it's, it's kind of an academic book. But I found it to be really interesting because he talks about chronic illness as storytelling because you have one version of your story that you use for the medical community, doctors and nurses and people who want to know that part of your story. You have a different version of your story that you tell to loved ones. You have a different version of your story that you would tell to, say, strangers. So he talks about you have to develop all these different kinds of Narratives and it. I had never thought about that before, but I don't talk to my rheumatologist the same way I talk to my parents about what's going on, you know, or the same way I talk to my husband. It's different, and you have to develop this different language that you have to use to talk about your disease and how, you know, illness. He, dis- he differentiates between sickness and illness. So sickness, you go to the doctor, you get the medication, and you're better. Illness, you go to the doctor, you get the medication, and I don't know, maybe you feel better, maybe you don't. And the constant interruptions in your life that an illness is. And it's these things are just obvious, <laughs> but I had never thought about them in that terminology or that language before. And I'm really enjoying that book that's the wounded storyteller
0: that sounds fascinating and it e- even just hearing you summarize, I'm like, oh yeah no, that's true I yeah like
2: yeah. the
0: version of events gets edited differently for my doctor than it does for family friends even sometimes
2: yeah, and I would also recommend um joining groups on social media that are specific for your type of disease or disability or whatever your situation is. Um, So vasculitis, which I have, the uh, GPA version of it only affects one in 100,000 people. And so I've literally never met another person. I live in a community of 15,000 people. So I've literally never met another person with GPA. But I feel like I have like I found my people on Facebook in some of the GPA groups because, you know, my hair hurts sometimes. Somebody'll type and somebody else will go, "I thought I was crazy. Mine does that too." And it you just feel like you're not alone, especially if you have sort of a rare set of you know, symptoms or circumstances, it's, it's really helpful. Also, there are things that my doctor didn't tell me about, like, you know, medication copay cards and stuff like that, that I found out in these groups that has saved me tons of money. Um, So they can be, uh, some of them are hit or miss. But sometimes, aside from the community, there are really helpful tips and stuff that you can find in those groups. I mean, nobody's a doctor, so that kind of stuff can be really useful.
1: Yeah, that's something um, Robin and I have talked about before: uh, the importance of talking to people who know what is, you know, know what it's like, mm-hmm. because um, chronic illness or disability is something where, in some cases you might grow up in a family where somebody has the same thing as you or, mm-hmm. or whatever, but that's not the, that's, that's usually the exception, not the rule. And so people, you know, there's, there's no handbook to navigate it that comes, or there's no sort of thing that you like, well, I learned this when I was little, so I know how to navigate this as an adult. Cause you don't, you know, you generally, you generally do not
2: get that. Yeah, and GPA has only been diagnosed since World War II, which sounds like it was a long time ago, but in medicine world it's not. So they don't even know where this comes from. Is it genetic? Is it environmental? Is it hereditary? They they have no idea. So there's this group of us who have this terrible disease who are, you know, speculating we're not going to cure anything because none of us have the knowledge to do that, but you know, if 80% of us have a family member with it, maybe there's something to that.
1: I wanted to come back
2: a little bit to, um, there's a lot
1: of, uh, be- before, we pause for a moment, there was a lot of really good stuff that you said, a lot of good advice. I wanted to come back to, um, for a moment to the grief component. Um, because I think that that's, and just grief in general, um, is something that's I think misunderstood and poorly explained to people. We're not really taught up very much about grief. And so most of what people think they know about grief is about grieving the death of an immediate relative. You know, and we don't really learn or get a lot of skills to cope with all the other kinds of grief in our lives. And so and and this is a profound source of grief. When you have a health condition or something that, that comes up and it changes everything, that portion I think is something that's unappreciated, the amount of grief that, are, that either you might go through as a, as a person, as a clergy and you're a clergy person, but you're still a person first, um, if something like this happens. Or the amount of grief that a parishioner or somebody you're caring for is experiencing. We don't appreciate what people, how much people are grieving. I think.
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's really funny because um, sometimes God gets on my nerves <laughs> because pre disease, um, God placed it on me to start a grief ministry in my community, um, and I did. I partnered with a couple of other churches, and we got this going. And you know, it wasn't where we had dozens and dozens of people coming out to it. But we trusted that the people who came out to it were the people who needed it. Mm -hmm. And Stephanie, like you just said, they were all people who had lost mother, father, spouse, child, that sort of thing. Um, And then I got sick. And I was able, as I was going through it, I kind of said, oh, now I'm bargaining. Now I'm in denial. Now I'm angry. And so I could identify, not that that was helpful for anyone but me, but I could identify the stages of grief I was going through as I was going through them. And, you know, now I watch TV and a character is acting out, and I'm like, oh, well, they're grieving the loss of, or they're grieving about the changes that happened when. And I see grief everywhere. And we don't talk about any of that. Mm-hmm. Not at all. And we should be, because there's grief that happens when you lose a job. Right. Or even when you willingly leave a job, there's grief that happens, you know, when your relative across the country is sad. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that comes into it and we just don't talk about it.
1: Right. When you have to sort out which prayer books you're keeping out of the eight gajillion prayer books Mm -hmm. that you have in the three congregations that you're merging. Yeah. You know, or which pulpit hanging is going to get kept or which whatever. There's everything. It's everywhere. It's woven through everything and through all the things that we have to handle or accept as life progresses. It's, It's just, it's everywhere.
2: It really is. So I lived it. I learned about it. And then I lived it in a totally new and different way. And I'm still like, it'll be five years with this disease in March. And I have days where I'm still angry about it or I'm still sad about it. And you just learn to, okay, we're just going to have a day where we cry. And that's, I talk about, I end up talking about myself in the plural because my body has its own mind about what it's doing. (laughs) And then I have my own mind about what we're doing. And 10 times out of 10, my body wins. But I don't feel as connected to my body as I used to because my body's like actively working against me sometimes. So some days, you know, we are just gonna have a sappy cry at a stupid commercial day. And I know it's not about the commercial and I know it's not because I don't feel well, I know it's grief. And so we just have a grief day once in a while and that's just what it is I can't change it I can't bury it I've tried that that doesn't work so you just gotta deal with it and I I don't like it but it is what it is
0: are there things that being that steeped in grief have taught you that you can sort of carry into the next time it comes up and I know this can be different for other people but I'm curious what yours might be
2: that it's not forever. It will end. There will be a time when you come out of it, um, which is not to say it won't come back again because it always does. Grief isn't linear. But, you know, once you have all the cries and feel all the feels and say all those things to God, you're going to regret later. It'll be over and then you'll go back to life. And I think that's the same when you lose a loved one and you hear a song That reminds you of them and you sit and you have a meltdown in your car for 10 minutes and then you pick yourself up and you, you know, go into the grocery store and get your groceries. It's the same sort of thing, but knowing that it will end somehow makes it a little bit easier to deal with because you're not going to be sad forever because you still have to make dinner and you still have to care for the kids and you still have to let the dog out. You know, you still have things you need to do and you can't sit and be sad forever. And that's a good thing. That's a really good thing.
0: Is there anything that you think would have been helpful for someone to offer you or companion you in some way through, especially some of those first early bouts of grief, but even some of the ongoing ones?
2: So, um this disease cost me a marriage. Mm. Um, I'm uh, sorry. About six months. Thank you. About six months into it. Um, when I, so my husband at the time was 14 years older than me. So he expected I was going to take care of him when he got old and sick and feeble. And once the shoe was on the other foot, um, he checked out. And That happens a lot, I'm learning, with women especially. Um, There's a lot of women who end up losing a spouse or a partner or whatever um, when they're diagnosed. And I was on very high doses of prednisone at the time. (laughs) Oh, my. And if you've ever been on high doses of prednisone, you probably see where I'm going with this. But it gave me the artificial courage to say the things I might not otherwise have been able to say to him and it would not, that I would not have been able to do in order to end that marriage. It probably would have dragged on a lot longer and been unhealthy for me, for him and for everybody around us. So I ended up being very thankful to prednisone um, for giving me the courage to say and do things that I probably otherwise would not have had. Um, So there was grief around the illness there was grief around the loss of the marriage there was grief around I am not the same person I have stretch marks because gained a lot of weight on the prednisone
0: prednisone um,
2: yeah the devil's tick decks.
0: um <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm stealing that I'm stealing that and you're welcome to
2: you know who's gonna want you know if you don't get married by the time you go into ministry, nobody's gonna want you. I heard that in seminary. So, you know, who's gonna want me now? Because I don't look great and I certainly don't feel great. And look at all this medical debt I've since piled up and nobody's gonna wanna get anywhere near this with a 10 foot pole. And, you know, you go through all of that all at the same time. So I think that was a little bit helpful in that I was going through all of that all at the same time. But um, coming out of that, you know, the grief gets a little bit easier each time because you can recognize what it is and you can say, okay, let's do it. So I don't mean to sound ableist for people who struggle with things like anxiety and depression and things like, well, you just go through it and you come out of it. I don't mean to say that. I mean, there, that is a legitimate reason to feel sad and need some help, whether it's counseling or medication or whatever. Um, so I don't, I don't mean to sound that way, but, um, yeah.
0: I mean, what I hear you saying, and this might be a little too gendered for, um, people who don't have uteruses, but it's akin to how I often hear women talk about period cramps. Mm Mm-hmm like it's terrible and then you know it comes back next month but in the between you get some weeks without them mhm <laughs> yeah
2: i mean that and that's what a flare is right so it's no, it's kind of normal or it's quiet and calm in the meantime but you know that your body is going to actively get really sick in a probably pretty short amount of time and you have absolutely no control over it Like, this is my body. This is me. All of these cells, all of this blood, all of these veins and arteries, this is what makes the physical manifestation of me. And yet, I have no control over what my body is doing. My immune system is doing its own thing, and I have no control over it. And that's kind of a weird feeling. That's a really weird feeling to feel in but separate from your own body. It's really strange.
1: It seems like just such a, um, just sort of like takes any illusion that we do have of control and just kind of destroys it. Like we don't actually have control, but a lot of us are able to live in that sort of a little world of denial where we think we have control over something or our body, our health, our whatever. And, we don't.
2: Right. And that gets back to God, right? Because we are not in control. God is in control. And so we feel like, oh, well, I make all the decisions in my life, but hmm, do you really? If depending on what you believe about God and different traditions have different theologies there, but if you believe God has a divine plan for you, then maybe you don't have as much control as you think. And it's, it's very akin to chronic illness because you really don't have the control over your life that you think you have. Because maybe your daughter's getting married a year from now and you're doing all the things and buying all the stuff and making all the plans. And then two weeks before that, your disease is going to flare. And well, that's that. That gets back to those interruptions I was talking about with illness. It's a life of constant interruptions.
0: As you continue to learn how to live with those interruptions, um, how are you finding, explaining that? How are people receiving that?
2: Because some of these friends are clergy, people are generally shocked. And, And Stephanie, you said it earlier, is that we're clergy people but we're people we're persons yeah. first. first so yeah it doesn't matter if we're clergy when you can't physically be there for someone you can't be there for someone that's just life and it's it's difficult i like i said i was angry for a long time and i think when i share stuff like that with people it helps to humanize the pastor and take the pastor off the pedestal and to say, yeah, we hurt and we feel and we have emotions just like you do. And we don't always have people in our lives who are super supportive or we have people who just walk out or who check out or who abandon us. And I think it's very humanizing, especially if you're talking to parishioners or people who aren't terribly familiar with the church it just really helps to take that pastor off the pedestal and makes us seem like, you know, if you prick us, do we not bleed kind of
0: thing? Yeah. That was sort of my next follow-up question to that is how has that gone over with church people? Because that is always a, uh, I know I've had a few times where there's been some big whatever coming up and I'm really excited about it and looking forward to it. You know, then on the day of it, I cannot show up in the way I was expecting to be able to show up for that. And I think people, I mean, I I haven't always explained that out loud, but I think people have generally been fine, but my own disappointment is often maybe the hardest part.
2: I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's the same kind of guilt that you feel at the end of the day because you didn't get to call that one person that you should have called or you don't have time this week to visit that one person you should have visited. Right. And it's that same, like nobody's holding you accountable for that, but yourself. So you only have yourself to report to and yourself is really feeling guilty about it. And so how do you navigate that? How do you turn that off? How do you deal with that? That's, that's a really hard question. And I don't, I don't have an easy solution for that.
0: Yeah, I don't either. I will say I, I hear similar things from other clergy, but part of what I'm hearing from people who are, are seemingly abled, at least to everyone's knowledge, um, but it does feel like it's turned up a bit when there's a chronic illness or disability aspect involved. Yes. But I think the other thing I'm, at least right now, I'm really curious about is how has all of this changed how you pastor people who are grieving?
2: That's a really good question. I'd have to think about that a little bit.
0: You do not have to have an answer right now. That is.
2: Yeah, it's kind of different because the nature of the grief is similar but different. So I wouldn't necessarily bring my chronic illness grief into a situation where I'm ministering to someone who just lost their mother. But when part of the the liturgy from the book of common worship for the uh, funeral service is for whatever their name is. Death is uh, pain is past and death has ended that. And that hits me in a different way. Now that, you know, I've had nerve pain in my face. I've had joint pain trying to wean steroids and things like that, that yeah, for pain to be past, that sounds pretty darn good. And, you know, I'm ready for that. I'm not excited about dying, but I'm ready for that. I mean, if you had asked me that question in 2018, I would have said, well, you know, death happens, it happens kind of thing. But, you know, I'm in a different place about it now. I'm much less scared of death than I used to be. Because I used to be scared of dying before I finished all the things seen all the things and done all the things and been all the places that I wanted to go. And now with chronic illness, I'm like, that might not be a reality. Even if I live to 152, you know, it just might not be a reality for me. And I've come to terms with that. So I'm much less fearful of dying than I used to be. And I don't know how that would be comforting to someone who just lost their spouse, but Um, that's where I am at least.
1: I feel like there's a vibe about that. I mean, I like when you're, when you're suffering or you're experiencing a crisis and the person providing pastoral care is someone who is where this is not their first rodeo in life and they have come to a place of certain kind of acceptance There's something about the way that reads that I think people find helpful. You know, even if you would never, even if that would be something you would never say because you're dealing with that person's situation and it's not about you in that moment. um, The sense that you are not afraid of all the things that could happen. You know, people, people pick that up.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that.
1: Yeah. Like a sense of someone who's much more centered and and wiser than maybe they once, you know, maybe they were or maybe they would have been. You know, it's again not that not that that's a good reason for bad things to happen, but it's the like the meaning making. Yeah. The ability or the ability to 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 you know connect with other people's suffering even if it's only, like, you know, in your head, there's something about the way that that will come across. I think it's comforting to others.
2: Well, and it's that non-anxious presence again. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So I've dearly loved parishioners that I've lost, but I realize that for them, pain is past and death has ended that. And that is a really good thing because on some level, whatever level, we may understand or not that person was suffering and to be that non-anxious
0: presence is huge Mm -hmm. yeah i think there's a at least for me it it has sometimes and i people may have different reactions to this but when someone says oh well at least they're out of pain i feel like there's a a gravitas i guess to my ability Mm -hmm. to agree with them that I would not have had without experiences. I wouldn't want anyone to have to go through with pain and, um, the endlessness that that can seem like at times.
1: Any other resources or anything, um, that you might've thought, thought of that you didn't get to mention before, anything, anything else, um, advice, et cetera, that we should share with our listeners
2: we just had back in May a chronic illness support Sunday. And this had nothing to do with me. Um, We had a parishioner who's suffering from cancer and we wanted to have a way that we could support them. So the idea branched out to say, well, there's a lot of people who are suffering from things. There are other cancer survivors in the congregation How could we broaden this to help people understand a little bit more about the constant suffering some folks have to endure? So we had this chronic illness Sunday, and I invited three people from the congregation to come up and share kind of like a testimony. And we're Presbyterian. We don't do testimonies. But (laughs) we put that aside for the day. We understand. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I had so many people after the service come up to me and say, you know, it's almost like everybody's dealing with some sort of chronic illness. And I went, whoa, the light, like the light just turned on and you could see this realization that had nothing to do with anything I did in the service. God was at work in that space between what was said at the microphone and what the people heard to transform that into an understanding of there's a lot of people who are suffering from diabetes, high blood pressure, seizures, fill in the blank. And wow, I never thought about that. And that is huge. That is huge. And I was so happy about that. So we decided, the congregation decided, we're going to do one of these services every other year, just to raise some awareness about what people are struggling with. And I was so, I was so, it was like a proud mama moment. I was so proud of them that I thought, oh my goodness, the spirit is at work. I've done my job. Now I can retire and be proud of, (laughs) of what I've done here. Um, But like, it, you don't often have those moments where you're like they got it they understood it it just worked and that was one of those moments I was I was so happy about that
1: so you know we the this podcast of course is called the accessible altar and we talk about a lot of different questions um, around accessibility of, of our churches and I think in that story you raised, um, something that I'm not sure we've touched on before, which is one of the things that makes church a more accessible place mm-hmm. is people talk literally just talking about things and there being a space for them to articulate what their experiences are, what they've gone through and to, to diminish the isolation.
2: Yeah, I mean, being in accessible church is not just about handicap. Handicap ramps and elevators. Right. Right. There's a lot more to it. And that was just one of those holy moments that God was at work and picked up where the words left off and really moved some people in the congregation. Are they going to go out and contribute money to the XYZ foundation? Are they going to become champions for whatever disease? Probably not. But the next time they interact with that person who shared their story, they might ask a question and say, hey, is there anything you need? Is there something I could help you with? And that, that's the definition of ministry right there.
0: Absolutely. Or even the next time someone discloses a, an ongoing health thing perhaps they will be better able to receive that as a story that doesn't need fixing.
2: Exactly. Or even a, thank you for sharing that with me. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's huge. That That can mean the world to somebody who's suffering from something. Just to be seen and heard and acknowledged and appreciated for who they are because of their illness, not in spite of, but because of. Because that's that's part of who I am now. Yeah. That's not the most interesting thing about me, but that's part of who I am. Again,
1: thank you so
2: much for all of your sure. time
1: and you know effort to be with us here today and dealing with our technology uh, glitches. Um, mm, and which thank you for the. We're not quite over yet. <laughs> we're working on it yet. Yeah. Thank you for the resources uh, that you share with us. We will link those. We We have show notes, so your resources will be in the show notes
0: for people to find. Thank you for joining us for this conversation about faith and disability. We encourage you to find local conversation partners to talk with and to remember the complexity of grief as you explore the intersections of faith and disability. Stephanie, what did you, what what has stuck with you the most about this conversation?
1: Um, so like so many of our interviews, this conversation had a lot of really interesting pieces and a lot of great wisdom. Um, Two things that that struck with me, that that struck me or stuck with me, actually. um, uh, The first thing is, um, she talked about The healing miracle in Luke, I believe it's Luke 13, and Jesus encounters a woman uh, that's been, it says that she's been bent over uh, for 18 years, I believe. And um, Sharon talked about having an icon or a painting or something like that, an image of that encounter in her office where the the woman is sort of bent over one direction and Jesus is sort of um, encountering her and is bent over in the in the same arc as her leaning towards her and talking about Jesus meeting us where we are. Um, and I have never thought about that story that way. Um, and I, I was happy that she raised it. I thought that was a really good uh, point and makes a, a, a really good and really important point. Um, the other piece that I thought was really great is she told this story about, um, having somebody in her congregation who has cancer and the congregation deciding that they wanted to do something to support this person. Um, and just to offer support to anybody with whatever chronic illness and that they had a Sunday where that was something that they talked about and they invited people to stand up and uh, speak about it and that it really, um, made a big difference for the congregation. People realized that there are a lot of people going through a number of different things related to uh, chronic illness, and also people felt supported in a new and different way. And um, I like that she told that story and the way that she felt the Holy Spirit was moving within her congregation um, when that happened and how they're going to do it again in the future. Um, One of the things that immediately jumped into my mind when she was talking about it is I thought, that is a kind of accessibility, Um, it's, it's a different kind of accessibility. It is uh, a solidarity, the kind of solidarity that like helps you know that you're not alone, the kind of solidarity that gives you um, a sense of belonging rather than a sense of isolation. And I just thought that's something that can, is a very um, accessible, just to use a word again, but accessible and possible thing for our congregations to do sometimes people don't realize that there's um that they're not the only one going through something so you can use accessible a lot it's one of our things (laughs) yeah yeah i know we use the word a lot but i thought that you know solidarity is accessibility when Mm -hmm. you are not by alone you it gives you um more courage to do whatever it is you need to do yeah You know, when you know that there are people that have your back or people who have been there.
0: And it, I mean, I'm not going to say it like ends the loneliness because sometimes it might and other times it might not. But I do think it challenges the sense of being trapped and alone. Like, even if other people can't understand, here are people who might be willing to listen. Which is significant. yeah. I think I cut it out of the recording, but we did ask and they did not record that for people's privacy. Just so if you're going looking for that or thinking of doing that in your congregation, something to to also know about that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just thought that 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 in the right, you know, in the right way, in the right context, knowing that other people um, are going through whatever you you might be going through. That's, that's something helpful for parishioners to offer one another or for people to um, offer in a setting where sometimes it feels like you're supposed to, I, I know there can be places where it feels like you're supposed to sort of bury your struggles and just be, you know, sort of keeping up appearances. And mm-hmm. this was something that they did. It offered people a, another option. Um, and, she you know, she also mentions um, this, uh, the thing of, you know, looking with, even if it's just online, even if it's not in person, but looking for groups of people who are, um, who are organized because they have whatever the situation is, that's the same as whatever you've got going on. Um, and that that's been really helpful and really important. And I really wanted to, I really want to second that. Like there's, um, there is definitely, you know, resources out there for everybody online, depending on whatever your situation is, your people are out there. Um, and it is really helpful. It's really helpful. I have, I belong to two different groups of people that have albinism, for example. And I, this morning, a woman said, Hey, I've tried to help all my kids become self-sufficient. And so one of the things I do with each of my kids is I help them learn basic cooking techniques. My daughter is struggling. Her daughter, who has albinism, is struggling with some aspects of that. And she had questions for the adults. Like, I know you all cook or whatever, so what do you do? And we all had some advice
0: on some basic stuff, just ways to get
1: creative. That's just a small thing, but it's nice to have community.
0: Yeah, online community was transformative in finding people who talked about the same even just knowing there are people who talk about the same things. And I'm like, oh, it's not just me. All of us are asking this question. Always better when there's an answer sometimes. Or an answer but sometimes it's just nice to not be the only person asking that question. Right. Yeah, there are problems that you can't can't solve, but to have other people say, Oh, oh yeah, that thing. Right. It's all yeah.
1: This is a known problem. Right, exactly. It's not you. It's the situation.
0: It's like when you yeah. your power goes out and then you look on the street and everyone else's power is out too. You're like, okay, it's bigger <laughs> than my house.
1: So Robin, in, in our interview with Sharon, um, what has stuck with you?
0: I'm still, every time I think about this, I'm still just amazed. She was willing to come and talk to us fairly recently after her diagnosis um, and I was not that articulate after that in that period of time, after most of my diagnoses, certainly not the more life changing ones um and be really deeply vulnerable and i'm I'm incredibly grateful for that bravery and gift, and I'm also struck by... I mean, it has been more years than that for me. And there are moments where I was like, yes, I remember exactly what this is like. And it is different now, but it is also still the same in a weird sort of time travel kind of way.
1: Yeah, it seemed, I mean, she was diagnosed in 2018. And in, in time, when it comes to those kinds of things, that was not very long ago. You know, just like if somebody says that they lost somebody really dear to them, say, four or five years ago, in grief time, that's like 10 minutes, right? Like, it is, that is, it's very, it was very, very recent. Yeah.
0: But, yeah, the ability to come and talk about the deep grief of this, which is so true and lasting, I'm so thankful And then uh, her bio has the line about her kitchen counter pharmacy and that just cracks me up every time.
1: (laughs) You've been listening to The Accessible Altar, a podcast at the intersection of faith and disability hosted by Robin King and Stephanie Shockley. We record on the traditional land of the Lenni Lenape and Treaty 6 territory. If
0: you like the Accessible Altar? Please rate and review us wherever you find podcasts.
1: For additional information about anything we talked about in this episode, as well as a transcript of the show, check out the show notes on our website, www.accessiblealtar.com.
0: We are on Twitter and Instagram as at accessible altar. And join us on our Facebook page at The Accessible Altar.
1: If you have questions, feedback, or ideas for future episodes, email us at accessiblealtar@gmail.com. at gmail.com. <laughs>